Thank you for downloading the Discovery Fellowship podcast. This is our sermon podcast today. Pastor Rick is continuing the book of Ephesians with message number 15. We're talking about the armor of God and what it looks like to put on the belt of truth in a world that increasingly doesn't know what truth is. As always, if you'd like to support the ministry of Discovery Fellowship Church, you can visit dfchurch.com and make sure to check out our Friday podcast, Faith Life, where Pastor Matt and I discuss current interesting issues for the church. Now, here is Pastor Rick. Now, we all know, I'm sure, that we live in a day of wars and uh, rumors of war. And I think we all know that war is a terrible thing. Um, The images that we can see almost daily on TV, on the internet from the conflict uh, in the Ukraine gives ample testimony to that. But obviously, if you're in a war and you have to fight, Uh, It's good to have some of the best weaponry on your side. And so, I invite you to take a look real quickly here this morning at some of the latest uh, weaponry that our U.S. military servicemen and servicewomen have at their disposal. That's a cool-looking one right there. That is called the Comanche gunship. It is the most advanced uh, helicopter in the world. It employs stealth technology designed for attack and reconnaissance. It has a sealed cockpit uh, to protect against biological and chemical threats. The F-22 Raptor uh, is a titanium airframe uh, aircraft that can supercruise at Mach 1.5, which is just short of about 1,200 miles per hour. It's the first stealth air-to-air fighter. The M1 Abrams tank uh, is one of the most sophisticated in the world, major upgrades to its armaments. It is a deadly vehicle. The Javelin is a portable shoulder-fired anti-tank missile with uh, precision, infrared-guided capabilities, has a range of more than a mile and a half. The Osprey is a hybrid aircraft capable of taking off like a helicopter and then rotating its engines and flying like a turboprop airplane. Mounted on the back of a Humvee, the enhanced fiber optic guided missile battery has a range of 15 uh, kilometers. The A-10 Thunderbolt Warthog uh, tank killer is one of the deadliest aircraft in the U.S. military. And then UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, uh, can safely do recon as well as deliver precision laser guided munitions. Now, um, I share about these amazing and deadly weapons of modern warfare on today's battlefields uh, around the world, not to glorify killing um, or destruction, but to make this segue this morning in regard to the following truisms. If it is true uh, that you are a Christian, then it is also true, according to the Word of God, that you and I are a participant uh, in a war. And if it's true that we are participants in a real war, according to the Word of God, then you can either stand or you can fall as a casualty. And if you and I are to stand in the battle rather than fall as a casualty, then it is also true because we're talking about spiritual reality here, that we require those things that only God, in fact, can provide for the conflict. And so, again, 
As we heard read from those verses in Ephesians chapter 6, a veteran soldier in the conflict named Paul calls out to those of us who are his fellow soldiers. So look with me, if you will, once again um, at verse 10. It's a slightly different version. But here again he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. And then he proceeds in verses 14 to 17 to list six pieces of equipment that are uh, absolutely indispensable to each one of us. In fact, these are vital that we understand them, that we use them. So you can see them there before you. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. Now, upon closer inspection of that particular passage, you'll discover that these pieces are actually listed for us in two triads, meaning two groups of three. The first group are described in your text before you, having uh, in verse 14, beginning with the word having. Having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The second group uh, of three are described slightly, but significantly, I think, differently. In verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation, and take, it's understood, the sword of the Spirit. In other words, implicit in this text is the reality that the follower of Jesus Christ is not ready for living every day unless he or she has put to themselves these six pieces of equipment. And each piece, it appears, must be put on in the order that they're listed here. He first of all attaches the basic equipment, the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, and then he adds specific tools for specific tactics, the shield, the helmet, the sword. A Christian, first of all, needs the basic equipment to hold his or her person together, hold their life together. But they also need those supplemental instruments, specific tools to wield in the everyday battles that we face, which vary in intensity and in character. And if we're talking about real warfare, no soldier worth his or her salt, of course, would ever enter battle without first attaching to themselves the basic equipment, the belt, the chest protector, the shoes. They would never go into battle without those. In the, in the end, the whole ensemble, minus nothing, is vital if we are going to stand. Now, it might be said, and this is just my personal opinion, that the first piece of equipment is, in fact, the most important, the belt of truth. Look at verse 14 again. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. 
a different version. The NIV version says, because it's a paraphrase, it says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Or the amplified version says it this way, hold your ground, having tightened the belt of truth around your loins. The Living Bible puts it this way, but to do this, that is to stand in the battle, you'll need the strong belt of truth. Point being, the first piece of equipment that the Roman soldier would don would be his belt. Officers in uh, the Roman army wore mid-length, uh, mid, mid-thigh length skirts, somewhat like a Scottish kilt, that would keep their legs free and uh, unimpeded for the upcoming fight that they would be in. Tightening your belt or girding your loins was always an expression of being ready to fight. In fact, there was a phrase in uh, military parlance that said if you loosened your belt, that meant that you were going off duty. You had to have it on and you had to have it secure in order to go into the fight. And back in the day, there were different uh, shapes and types of belts. In fact, depending on the shape and the color, uh, the configuration would be used to identify that soldier's rank and identify his person. Therefore, wearing this belt, that is truth, does a number of things for the Christian, the follower of Jesus. For one, it readies us for spiritual battles. Oftentimes, I think, we as Christians can be shaken, and we are unprepared, it seems, for what oftentimes happens in our lives. Why is that? Secondly, the belt also provides freedom of movement in the middle of the battle. Thirdly, this belt protects the believer. It fourthly supports the basic parts of a person's life, and then fifthly, it identifies him or her in a particular way. So. If you think about it, these are the functions of truth in your spiritual life as a believer. It readies you, it frees you for movement, it protects, it supports, and it identifies you. In the world as a Christian, all right? So that's what it does. What does the Apostle Paul mean then by having put on the belt of truth? How do I put on this belt of truth? I believe that there are two steps to putting the belt on. I mean, it's easy to figure out, I think, what the belt is and what it does. The challenge for us is actually putting it on. How do you put the belt of truth on? Again, two steps, I think. First of all, you put it on by knowing the truth. You put the belt on by knowing the truth. Now, if you should ever do a concordance study on the word truth in the New Testament, here's what you'll discover. Whenever the Apostle Paul wrote about truth in all of his letters from the epistle to the Romans through Titus, he always spoke about truth in two ways. He first of all spoke about the truth of the gospel. Look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. Paul is referencing there a time when the nature of the gospel was being debated back in the day among the early church leaders, essentially between Peter and Paul. And Peter was arguing, or at least he was showing in his life, that the gospel also involved obeying ceremonial laws. And Paul 
kind of came jaw to jaw with the apostle Peter and called him on his compromise. And he says right there in the verse, we did not yield to them for even an hour in this discussion so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. In other words, Paul never wanted any believer anywhere uh, to have a fuzzy conception about what the gospel was. He wanted the clear truth of the gospel to be made plain to people. Elsewhere, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, he wrote, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. What was it that turned the lives of the Ephesians around? They heard the gospel, the message of the truth, and they believed it. The truth of the gospel, Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, I take it from these verses and many others that you can find in the Bible that every Christian must know what the gospel is. He or she, we, need to be crystal clear about the message of salvation, what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ for men and for women, and what, it must, what must happen in order for a person to be right with God. And each one of us, I believe, should know the gospel and be able to speak about it clearly with anybody that God should bring into our path. The belt of truth, put it on. Now, I say this because I've had occasion to talk with many believers over the years who have had the embarrassing condition of being unable to articulate what the gospel is. And so I wonder, if someone were to come up to you today at some point and say, hey, you're a Christian, right? How do you get right with God? How can you know for sure that you're saved? Would the answer be right there on your tongue? Let me ask you another question in a different way. Let's say you're driving down College Avenue and uh, you've got your cell phone on the front seat with you, and up ahead of you, you see a car run a stoplight and come across the intersection because the guy is on his own cell phone talking as he's driving, and there's another guy ahead of you barreling towards him, and he's also talking on his cell phone. They don't see each other, and then there is that sickening sound of metal crashing into metal and glass breaking and cars are flipped over. What would you do first? What would you do? More than likely, if you were out of harm's way, you'd pick up your cell phone once you stopped your car, and you would dial three numbers, right? What are they? 911. And you'd dial those three numbers without even hardly thinking about it, because that's when you talk to somebody on the other end, and they're going to assure you that rescue is on the way. Help is on the way. You're setting in motion a process from which you know, benefit and help will come to those who are in need. You dial 911 and you get the process going. You know exactly what to do. And so I wonder, why is it sometimes that people know something less when it comes to this 
thing called the gospel, even though we are Christians. The gospel is the 911 of our lives, and there are 911 cases all around us. You run into them virtually every day. And I think perhaps uh, the reason we don't get to help is because we don't have the belt of truth on our waist. We're not ready. We don't have the spiritual 911 ready to go. And so I ask you as a Christian, do you know the gospel like your own phone number? And can you explain it clearly? And if not, why not? And are you willing to do what's necessary in terms of reading, rehearsing, training yourself so that you can share the gospel with someone that needs to hear it at a moment's notice? The Christian must know the truth of the gospel. Now, the second thing that Paul talks about when he talks about the truth is that he oftentimes refers to information that God has revealed about himself in this world that's found in the Bible. What does the Bible teach about God? What does the Bible teach about men? What does it teach about marriage and parenting? What does it teach about Christian living? And so for you guys in here this morning, guys, I wonder, could you turn to key passages in the New Testament that talk about godly manhood and husbandry? Could you explain to somebody from the scriptures why it is that you are a different kind of person, a different kind of husband and father, and what the difference is? Could you turn to those passages and talk intelligently about what it is that God has revealed? What does the Bible teach about the condition of this world? What does the Bible teach about where God is taking history? In short, what does the Bible teach? Pastor Chuck Swindoll has written in one of his books that uh, at one of the top public high schools on the East Coast in a, uh, a course entitled The Bible as Literature, and I've taken those courses in college anyway, a test was given, and the following answers were given on the test. These are kind of classic. These folks, when they took the test, said that Sodom uh, and Gomorrah were lovers, Jezebel was Ahab's donkey. Some truth to that one, I think. The four horsemen appeared on the Acropolis. The New Testament Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, and Luther. And Eve was created from an apple. And perhaps the best one, when asked, what was Golgotha? One answer came back, the name of the giant that slew the apostle David. Now, why do we see those kinds of answers? It's because we live in a day of biblical illiteracy. And not, you know, just because some public school kids don't know much about the Bible, but even Christians oftentimes don't know and guess. There are people out there in the neighborhoods around here, folks, who are committed to Islam, who know more about the Quran uh, than many Christians know about the New Testament. There are people out there knocking on doors called Jehovah's Witnesses. They know more about the Watchtower Bible and the writings of, of Charles Taze Russell than many Christians know about the Gospel of John. And so, if we wonder why it is sometimes that we're not standing in the battle, why aren't we making more inroads with people? Why aren't we defeating the enemy who is after us every day? It's perhaps because we have not put on the belt.
We don't know the gospel. We don't know the word well. Now, we know what MSN.com says, or Fox News, or what the Coloradoan says, but knowing God's word well is not oftentimes a passion for too many Christians. You put on the belt by knowing the truth. And I think, secondly, you put on the belt by using the truth. Years ago, a pastor friend of mine uh, preached a message, and in that message, I heard what I think was perhaps one of the most simple and yet profound things that I've ever heard. He was preaching in that message about the temptation of Jesus. Uh, The narrative is found in both Matthew and Luke, and uh, you know all about that, that Satan came to Jesus, remember? And he told him, turn these stones into bread, and Jesus replied, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that God has spoken. And then Satan came again and countered and said, worship me, and all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. And by the way, that was sort of a temptation to allow Jesus to skirt the cross, to take an end run around the cross. The kingdoms were going to be his anyway, but this was a way to get them by avoiding the hard thing, the cross. So, if Jesus wanted to opt, you know, to opt for comfort, he could have opted for comfort. He could have had the kingdoms of the world, but he didn't. And Jesus replied, God alone is to be worshipped, and certainly not you. And then Satan came one more time, and he said, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Remember? Let's see a miracle. Prove to everybody, as they're passing through Jerusalem on the festival days here, that you are really the Son of God. Because if you throw yourself off, surely, as God's word says, his angels will protect you. And Jesus could have. He could have said, you know, that's a great idea. I don't have to trudge around from town to town, teaching 20 times a week, performing miracles here and there. I could just do a big spectacular deal right here, falling with style from the temple while everybody is looking on. But Jesus countered once again. He said, you don't flippantly test God's power. You don't demand miracles from God. Now, all of that I think is very familiar stuff, but it was something that this pastor then said at the end of that exposition that struck me. He said, Jesus Christ did not defeat Satan by quoting scripture. That's kind of what I had always thought. He said, Jesus Christ did not defeat Satan by quoting scripture. He defeated Satan by applying scripture. In other words, because life is, is more than physical provision, Jesus did not turn the stones into loaves of bread because God alone is worthy of worship. He did not bend his knee to Satan because God is not to be toyed with. You know, he's not a, a cosmic vending machine to get goodies from. Jesus did not throw himself from the top of the temple. He didn't simply quote scripture. He applied it to his experience. He was hungry. He could have had the bread, but he said, no, God's word is what I need. He used the truth in the activities of his life, having put on the belt, which is truth. He knew God's word, and he used God's word. Perhaps one of the um, most respected journalists in the world was ABC's Ted Koppel. I'm sure that many of you um, saw him in a speech that he once delivered to the International Radio and Television Society. Um, 
Mr. Koppel made this um, stunning admission. He said, what is largely missing in American life today is a sense of context, of saying or doing anything that is intended or even expected to live beyond the moment. There is no culture in the world that is so obsessed as ours with immediacy. In our journalism, the trivial replaces the momentous because we tend to measure the importance of events by how recently they have happened. We have become so obsessed with current facts that we have lost all touch with truth. Now think about that. What a statement, really, that is. We are so obsessed with what is happening today, with what seems to meet the need of the moment, to satisfy the curiosity of the hour. We are so obsessed with the news that we've lost touch, he is saying, with truth. We have slackened the belt, as it were, and gone off duty. One of America's greatest educators, John Milton Gregory, once said this, if we would have any great truth sustain and control us, we must return to it so often that it will at last rise up in the mind as a dictate of conscience and pour its steady light upon every act and every purpose with which it is concerned. We have got to put on the belt of truth. And if we don't, at the very best, we'll be very lackluster and very vulnerable believers. And that's about the best that we can hope for. And at worst, we'll be casualties in the battle. Let's pray. Father, you have given us truth. You are the one who gives us the words of life. You have given us Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be people who are committed to not only knowing the truth, but to applying the truth to our living. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to worship you through our gifts, our offerings this morning. We ask that you would bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.